In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For the last several weeks, our gospel lessons have been sayings of Jesus in the context of his ongoing and escalating interactions with the religious establishment of Israel. This evening, we're leaving behind the vineyard imagery, but we're moving, in a sense, deeper into the goodness of God that the vineyard represents. This evening, I'd like us to consider the call, the contempt, and the clothes. As with our other parables, here the character of the father is doing almost all the action. It is he who initiates over and over again toward his people. The call of the father is the call that Christ comes to declare in the incarnation. It's the call of repentance and faith, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. One of the things we've been trying to make clear over the last few weeks is that this call is rooted in love and mercy, and it's a call to return to life and joy. As we can see in our parable this evening, the call is a call to come and party, to celebrate, enjoy the wedding feast of the king's son. And here we need to do a bit of synthesis from the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about the vineyard as the trysting place of God, the place where he comes to woo his people. And last week, I said that repentance and faith can feel a lot like dying, like taking up our cross and denying ourselves. So the question is, is God calling us to a place of celebration or a place of suffering? The answer is, in a sense, yes. Ultimately, God's call is a return to true life. But because we have grown so accustomed to death and destruction, because we have consistently tried to build meaning in life out of emptiness, the light of God's mercy can make it feel like we're being burned alive. Which explains why, in some cases, the call of the gospel is met with, if not a shrug, then violent contempt. As we said last week, the call of the gospel, faith and repentance, requires self-repudiation, a letting go of the illusion of autonomy. Some, as in our parable, react with violence and contempt to this message that they are somehow contingent. Here is where those of us who are part of the church and have taken up the vocation of the church to continue the proclamation that in Christ the kingdom of God has drawn near. Here is where we can have an incredible sense of freedom and joy, even in the midst of a rapidly secularizing culture. There is freedom in trusting that it is the Spirit who brings illumination. It is the Spirit who brings to life our senses to experience the revelation of God. Father Julian Caron, in his essay that he wrote in response to the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris some years ago, asks this question. Do we Christians still believe in the capacity of the faith we have received to attract those we encounter? And do we believe in the living fascination of its disarming beauty? To put on display this disarming beauty is to live a life shaped by humble response to God's call. It's to move through life as a person who's been invited to the party of the year for the simple reason that the host loves you. But the rubber meets the road when the invitation to the party conflicts with our own plans. The way big events like a royal wedding would have happened back when would be that a general invitation would be sent out, but without a fixed date. Then, once everything was prepared, the call would go out again. The party you've been invited to is happening, and you'd basically drop everything and go. The idea is that at a certain level, just being alive means you have received an invitation from God to come and feast at his table. In the incarnation, the party of God's kingdom has drawn near in Christ. The call has gone out, so to speak. How many of us have paid no attention, heading off to work or back to the farm instead? To hold the call of God in contempt isn't just to react with violence, though some do. 
It is also in the thousand petty ways in which we ignore his constant invitation in favor of our own work and plans. For some of us, this is because we take ourselves too seriously. Whether it's out of a need to feel accomplished or comforted or in control, our plans, our work, our desires remain fully in the driver's seat of our lives, leaving the call of Jesus sounding like something frivolous, something we'll get to when we have more free time. Others of us, though, our ignoring of God's call is because we don't take ourselves seriously enough. We've trivialized ourselves with our security blanket of distraction. We've settled for entertainment rather than encounter, allowing ourselves to be kept small and imprisoned, unable to even imagine the freedom for which Christ has set us free. As that good Anglican C.S. Lewis famously wrote, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Here's a fun little thought experiment you can try. Ask yourself two questions. When's the last time I even wondered what the crucified and risen Christ is calling me to? And then, how does asking that question make me feel? Guilty? Annoyed? Frustrated? Afraid? If so, that's a sign that we're still not really hearing the call. Remember, the call of the kingdom isn't a summons to a funeral, it's an invitation to a wedding. If we're not sensing that joy, let us ask our Father, who loves to give gifts to his children, to give us the gift of the Spirit, the gift of an increasing desire for him. This leads us to the clothes. This parable can almost give you whiplash as it tosses us back and forth between judgment and indiscriminate grace. So what's this business about the poor guy who didn't have the right outfit on and gets tossed into the worst place imaginable? The first thing we have to get lodged firmly in our imagination is that no one, literally no one, gets invited to the party because they deserve to be invited. The wedding hall will be filled with the bad and the good, but everyone is there for only one reason— It pleased the king to invite them. The invitation system of the father is bonkers. I mean, we can kind of conceive of inviting everybody, but mostly as a way of impressing that handful of people we really care about. But that's not the father's kingdom. He just invites everyone out of his bountiful goodness, not because it will make him look better or feel better. Everyone who's there is there because of the father's goodness. And as it's been said, none are excluded but those who exclude themselves. So, if the basis for being at the wedding feast is grace through and through, what's the deal with the wedding clothes? It shouldn't be too surprising that throughout the history of the church, there have been a variety of interpretations. Luther was adamant that the wedding clothes represent faith, that it is only faith that is required to enter and remain at the feast of the king. Others, including some of the church fathers, have said that the wedding clothes are faith and good works which flow from faith and are rooted in God's mercy. St. Augustine, I think, summed up this tension perfectly by saying that the wedding clothes represent love. Does this mean that we get into the wedding by grace but stay there by our own efforts? No. Emphatically no. The wedding clothes required of the guests aren't things the guests have to procure on their own. As St. Paul tells the Galatian church, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. To be in Christ is to be given everything you need. It's grace from beginning to end. The relationship between faith and love is one that has caused massive fracture in the church, a signal that it's a difficult relationship to tease out. 
I won't be solving this particular juggernaut this evening, but I will say at the very least, faith leads to rightly ordered love, which leads to faith, which leads back to rightly ordered love. Those who will stand condemned in the last day are those who will insist on denying the merciful goodness of God, which is to say, those who refuse faith. The New Testament witness seems to at least suggest that we are capable of allowing our disordered loves to push us into places of unbelief, unfaith, where we are unable to trust that God truly is good and filled with mercy. This is partly why we are called to cultivate good works, to live in self-giving love for God and neighbor. We seem to have this idea that faith is this super easy thing and works are these really difficult things, but I don't think that's accurate to our lived experience. As Father Robert Capon said, free grace, dying love, and unqualified acceptance might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way we respond to it. All our protestations to the contrary, we will sooner accept a God we will be fed to than one we will be fed by. But the truth, as our Old Testament lesson so beautifully said, is that on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.